Most non-psychologists believe that the psyche is the subject matter of psychology. And a great many think that psychology somehow holds the ultimate key to the secrets of man's existence. Indeed, a large number of students take up the subject of psychology in order to gain a greater understanding of themselves and uh, perhaps secretly into the larger universe that we all inhabit. On the whole, such students are doomed to disappointment. The academic discipline of psychology is barely concerned with understanding, certainly understanding people, or with self-knowledge, let alone with larger inward and spiritual issues. Dr. Alice Heim, a very prominent British psychologist, recently told the story of a young man who being particularly good at science and logic and particularly poor at relating to people was perfectly sensibly advised by his careers teachers to take up psychology. Psychology is on the whole by and large virtually quite unconcerned with subjective experience or with the inner life. Now actually this is quite understandable since psychologists have fought hard for over a hundred years to attain the status of a science. Natural science is concerned with objective facts and with observations and our inner lives are not publicly accessible in the same way as are the contents of test tubes or electrical circuits or even nervous networks. Uh, but this state of affairs nevertheless reminds one of the story of the man who lost some money somewhere in the dark and insisted on looking for it under a particular lamppost. Uh, a particular passerby asked him what he was doing there, and he said he'd lost some money, he was looking for it there. And why, asked the passerby, do you insist for looking it under that lamppost? Because, replied the man, the light is better there. <laughs> Now, there are then a good many reasons why psychologists have cons concentrated their search on the sub-study of objective behaviour, and many of these are good reasons, such as that the life is better there. Overt, relatively simple movements can be studied objectively and publicly. They can be counted, recorded, measured, subjected to statistical techniques, in a way that is quite out of the question when we come to what each of us regards as our inner selves. Again, our information of the world through the organs of sense, 
and our actions on the world through our muscles and the artifacts that we create are easier to study than information that reaches us in ways unknown and actions performed in ways unknown. But the fact that such study is difficult and that its results are ambiguous is no reason, and at least it isn't a valid reason, for declaring that there's nothing there. We may have lost some coins where the light is poor and uncertain. For many psychologists, or rather for non-psychologists, the subject of psychology is virtually the same as the, or some form of psychoanalysis. And they tend to believe that psychology is wholly, or at least largely, concerned with unconscious aspects of man. And yet, psychoanalytic views, which are themselves in many ways rather like a theological background, are largely quite unacceptable to academic psychologists to whom the unconscious is as anathema as is consciousness. It is uh, quite true, of course, that when we theorize in terms of the unconscious, we are by implication postulating theories in terms of consciousness, which is precisely what behaviorism was endeavoring to exorcise. Behaviorism, crudely, the doctrine that all there is to human beings is movements of various sorts, is now waning. It was very much part and parcel of the upsurge of logical positivist thinking that culminated in the 30s and 40s and which involved a virtual denial of the reality, let alone the significance or any inner spiritual factors in the world of subjective experience. Although this influence is now weakening, its effects are still very much with us. Now we cannot tell with any definite certainty where our views of the psyche as they are now changing are taking us. We really are travelling into the unknown. And how we look on ourselves in turns affects how we in fact become. If we think of ourselves as reflex automata, we are liable to assume some of the characteristics of such automata. If we close doors firmly enough, we are very unlikely to venture very adventurously. On the other hand, if we open doors and begin to explore, we never quite know what we're going to find. Exploring is obviously exciting, it is also inevitably quite dangerous. The mechanical conception of man is at present under pressure from a number of directions. For one thing, inner experience, a sense of meaning, imagery, self-concepts, in short, the subjective, 
All these have, fortunately, reasserted their claims on study and on consideration by psychologists. For another, social factors are seen to play a far more important part than had hitherto been suspected in perception, in conduct, in evaluation, in development. The influences of groups of others are seen as having a subtle and deep influence on what we are and on what we become. These two, the social and the subjective, might be thought of as opposite poles, that which is most intimately within, that is the subjective, and that which is, psychologically at least, without the social. And yet, the third factor that is putting pressure on the mechanical and behaviourist image, namely the parapsychological evidence, suggests that these two facets, which apparently point in opposite directions, inwards and outwards, are not in fact totally separable. The psyche and our conception of the psyche are changing quite radically at the present time under the impact then of a recognition of inner, of social and so-called paranormal factors. If science is seen as an open textured empirical enterprise, as an investigation of the world in which anything might be the case, provided we are honest, careful, skillful enough in observation and experimentation, then we have no right whatever to exclude any observation, a priori or in principle. Only a sort of scientific prudery or bigotry would class as impossible the data or the phenomena of psychic research or psychology. On the other hand, let us admit right away that these phenomena are difficult to pin down, to predict, to replicate and to theorize about, more so than the subject matter of normal science. The light is better in the realm of the normal than of the paranormal. And yet the evidence is now quite overwhelming that we must take into account these findings and that the picture of the human psyche is very incomplete unless we are willing to face some of these implications. Now, I'm not proposing to argue today for the scientific propriety of such research. I shall take that for granted. Nor am I going to attempt to provide any evidence for any particular claims. There isn't time and it isn't the subject matter of my discussion. What I hope to do is to sketch some of the ways in which our picture of the psyche 
and indeed our psyche itself, are liable to change in response to the challenge from psychical research. And some of the steps that I believe we need to take in order to guide this change. Now, in order to take a new look in at psychology in the light of these phenomena, <coughs> I'm going to divide them in a rather unconventional way. Instead of the usual categories of mental and physical phenomena, where the mental are the quasi-perceptual and the physical are quasi-active, I'm going to divide them into two different classes that to some extent cut across these. And I'll call these the interpersonal and the material phenomena respectively. Imagine the psyche between two worlds facing, so to speak, in opposite directions. The world of persons and their groupings on the one hand and the world of objects, matter and its configurations on the other. In the normal course of our thinking, of course, we allow of interactions with both classes and take it for granted that there is at all times a well-understood physical mediation. In the case of the psychical phenomena, such a normal nexus is apparently absent. Let us suppose that all possible forms of this quasi-direct psychical linkage do take place. We now have on this schema four types of interaction, two interpersonal and two material ones, namely incoming and outgoing interpersonal reactions, incoming and outgoing material ones. Uh, let's have a look first at the interpersonal phenomena. These will comprise all cases of direct linkage between persons. The classical case of inter incoming interpersonal linkage is that of telepathy, where one person receives distant information concerning another person's experience. This is perhaps the commonest of all phenomena and that to which we perhaps put up least emotional resistance. Incidents where one person apparently knows about what's happening to someone dear or important to them without normal informational access to the relevant events are so well established and they're so widespread that we are almost in danger of not being astonished by them. But this opens the possibility of our in turns being influenced by all sorts of transpersonal factors without the least awareness that this is happening. To the social influences from without are added social influences from within. 
And I think we have barely begun to think what this might mean for the inner as well as the behavioral life of human beings and groups and individuals. It is said that knowledge is power. Perhaps if we know that we know and if we understand what we know but the ability or perhaps the sensitivity to respond to distant influence and information could also imply a degree of vulnerability to influence that is both without and within. The converse and complementary phenomena are those where persons actively exert psychic distant influence over others. These findings, though equally well established, are, for pretty obvious reasons, a good deal less popular and attractive than is telepathy. Yet, they are among the oldest and best documented findings. In the days when the phenomenology of hypnotism was as much under dispute as psychic linkage, it was soon discovered that apparently a hypnotist could occasionally exert a certain influence over his subject at a distance and without verbal communication. Uh, this is a type of phenomenon that was introduced onto the Russian scene in the early 1920s by a psychiatrist called Platonov, where it was demonstrated at a very large congress at the University of Leningrad. And the man put in charge of the research project was a young research worker <coughs> called Leonid Vasiliev, who established beyond all reasonable doubt that some people can sometimes influence the experience, the imagery and the behavior of others at a distance. He also demonstrated that this link between experimenter and subject was not in any way attenuated by screening of the type that would have inhibited radio communication, but that is another story. Now, the people so influenced did not, in their normal waking state, realize that they had been subject to distant influence, any more than a hypnotic subject, once he or she awakes, realizes what's been happening in the hypnotic state. But during the hypnotized state, uh, the Basilia subjects clearly realized the distant influence and symbolized the distant commands in terms of perfectly appropriate images such as, oh he's shouting at me or he's cutting the thread between us and so on. Now these experiments had quite clearly demarcated limits. The hypnotist had to know his subject, for instance, and vice versa. Though distance and relative location 
apparently did not seem to matter. The hypnotist had to image clearly what he wanted his subject to do and on the whole the subject had to be quite content to collaborate. So here again we have the prototype of an interpersonal psychic connection uh, that indeed has far-reaching implications concerning the nature of personality, its autonomy, its vulnerability on human development and on the potential influence that uh, we wield on one another. Such direct personal and social influences open up quite practical problems concerning education, child development, who influences whom, how, when, to what extent. The same questions arise in social psychology with its political overturns. It looks as if we are far more potentially involved with one another than we had imagined. That we are far more powerful, but at the same time far more vulnerable than we had thought. The boundaries between self and others are seen to be much more problematic than had been supposed. The other phenomena are called materials. Now, this term on the present schema refers to the direct linkage between the psyche and material systems, where there is ostensibly no interaction with other persons. The incoming material phenomena are those where a person apparently knows a distant state of affairs not known to any other person. This is normally called clairvoyance in psychic research terminology. And it is, of course, usually classed as a mental phenomenon. But on the schema I am proposing, I've called it a material phenomenon. Uh, a typical case is that of um, one of the subjects of Professor Ten Hart, Dutch parapsychologist, uh, whose Mr. Gamma pseudonym was consulted by an insurance firm about the whereabouts of a very valuable lost necklace. Mr. Gamma had images pointing to the whereabouts of this necklace in the drains of a house. And uh, to cut a very long story short, since I'm only illustrating here, in spite of the total scepticism about the possibility of the necklace being there, expressed by plumbers, builders and all the experts, uh, the insurance company insisted on the house being demolished there and there was the necklace. So I, I, I'm using this as a case of material linkage because there was no person at the other end. And finally and fourthly, we have the case where the psyche ostensibly acts on a material system which is currently usually called psychokinesis. 
I suppose this is scientifically the most disreputable of these phenomena. Uh, we tend to feel, since there's so much that we don't know um, about the mind, there could be all sorts of weird interpersonal reactions not involving the uses of sense. That is, uh, if we don't think too deeply about it. But we do know a great deal about matter and the properties of matter and therefore we tend very strongly to resist any notion that the behavior of matter might, uh, outside an anatomical body that is, be subject to direct psychic influence. And yet here too the evidence is quite substantial. Uh, take again for illustration for argument's sake the case of the Rosenheim poltergeist in which the town council's electrical and telephone engineers and physicists from the Max Planck Institute for Plasma Physics in Munich were all firmly convinced that the phenomena that they and very large number of other people had observed were quite outside the usually accepted theoretical framework of physics and its applications. True, we can neither produce these phenomena to order nor can we predict where the next outbreak is going to be. And yet the evidence for some sort of person influence on matter outside an anatomical body is as good as any. And once we can overcome our prejudices in this matter, which I must confess in my personal case were particularly fierce, it may then even come to seem to us that in principle such claims are perhaps more accessible to traditional scientific methods uh, than are the much more reasonable seeming uh, interpersonal phenomena. So, if we view the human psyche then as somehow poised between the world of persons and the world of matter, we can see a blurring of the boundaries, an increased potential for, in for communication and control in both, or rather all four directions. And for the moment we have very little idea of the limits, actual or potential. In addition, we face the further complication that the boundaries of the psyche are also blurred in time. We take for granted our normal extensions into the past and the future by long-term memory and by will and intention, although even as regards these undoubted happenings, we have little by way of scientific understanding. But we cannot, if we look at the matter impartially, ignore the evidence for precognition and retrocognition, whatever one wants to label them, 
that is the paranormal evidence for knowledge of the future and the past. It looks very much as if sometimes the relatively distant past and the relatively distant future can in some way be incorporated in present psychic experience. And so again, the psyche can be seen as both more powerful and more vulnerable than we had imagined. Now, there is nothing paradoxical about the juxtaposition of power and vulnerability. By the same token by which we extend into the realm of matter and of persons, they have power in some sense to affect us. Just as the advances of normal science are ethically neutral, capable of application for good or ill, so are the advances of knowledge in the realm of the psychic. It seems to me quite important to realize, right from the outset, that psychic influence over persons and over matter, from persons and from matter, may be exerted positively or negatively, and for all we know, may be continually so exerted, without anyone being consciously aware of this fact. We are probably as woefully ignorant of the facts of psychic hygiene, personal and social, as were the denizens of the Middle Ages of physical hygiene. One day, I'm pretty convinced we're going to talk about psychic pollution in terms not dissimilar from the ones in which we now talk about ordinary pollution. The human psyche continuously creates mental images which it monitors and modifies in the light of incoming sensory and somatic information. It looks as though the forces shaping these mental images, images that need of course not be visual, they can be in all the sensory modalities, may partly originate in distant states of affairs, personal and material. And our images in turns may affect states of affairs and persons at a distance in ways unknown and to an extent unknown. For all we know, our conviction that we experience a common universe is partly the result of an overlap in some sense between persons. It is certainly reasonable to suppose that we are primarily and normally affected by and that we primarily and normally affect the events mediated by our bodies. We know for certain that we have a 
vast amount of nervously transmitted information and control and the evidence for paranormal cognition and control nowhere points to an unlimited amount of such knowledge or influence. There may well be conservation laws and attenuation effects in the realm of the psyche, though these may turn out, of course, to look very different to physical conservation laws and attenuation laws. But the fact remains that we do not know either the extent or the range of such influences present. Nor do we have the least idea, and this is somewhat different, of the extent and range of such influence that could potentially be released and applied once there is the psychic equivalent of scientific technology. As regards the psychic, we are in the very early phases of development. We're still busy classifying, studying travellers' tales, testing without anything very much by way of a theory or hypothesis even. Standards and qualifications are still in the process of emerging. But what seems quite certain to me is there is something here of great importance for an understanding of our psyche and for its potential development and for human, spiritual and psychological well-being and almost certainly for physical health as well. The picture of the human psyche is not only incomplete, it is distorted if these aspects are systematically ignored. Nor can it be reasonably maintained that our social, political, mental, bodily, spiritual well-being are so secure, so satisfactory, uh, that we don't need any new insights. It may perhaps be that in the concentration on natural science in the past uh, 300 or so years, some aspect of the spiritual have been obscured. That psychic matters have been neglected is quite certain. It may well be that there was, uh, for example, some hidden wisdom in alchemy that was lost when it turned to chemistry. And it may be that the Renaissance rebels, uh, such as Giordano Bruno, who championed what has become astronomy and physics, had some deeper and wider inner vision than they are credited with. But we cannot now return to a pre-scientific age and to pre-scientific methods of looking at truth, at investigation, at theory, and at hypothesis. We have, perhaps once again, eaten of the tree of knowledge, 
and the effects of that are apt to be irreversible. We are faced with something very much like what in educational theory is called a spiral curriculum. That is the idea that the learner is forever presented with similar problems but at increasing levels of difficulty and complexity. It may have been thoroughly appropriate for natural science to develop by making usually tacit assumptions, uh, for instance about the isolability in principle of objects, persons, systems and events. Assumptions which, in the light of psychical research findings, may have to be either abandoned or at any rate limited. Uh, this is not a new situation in the history of science. Uh, Euclidean geometry, for instance, was once thought to be adequate for dealing with all the spatial relations obtaining in the universe uh, and it's now known that they are only in fact applicable at the range of man-sized objects on the surface of a body like the Earth but not to interstellar space. It may well be that new logics, new formalisms may be required when dealing with the psyche. Uh, Norbert Wiener, quite a long time ago in a book called Cybernetics, quoted a children's song about the number of stars and the number of clouds, all of which had been counted by God. Wiener pointed out that the concept of number applicable to stars was very different from the concept of number applicable to clouds. Perhaps we've taken it for granted that psyches are like stars rather than like clouds in this respect. Now I certainly don't want to press this analogy but I do want to insist that a horse or even an over-simplistic uh, model may have quite far-reaching ill effects as regards our understanding of ourselves. We need to contemplate the model of a person other than that of naive and crude head-counting of one body, one psyche and to question notions like the location and perhaps even precise localizability of the psyche in space and in time. The exploration of the psyche, the psychophysics of persons, requires not less skill and ingenuity than the investigation of known characteristics of the physical universe. The difficulty and the nature of the enterprise requires, uh, I believe, a number of changes 
in research emphasis, and not only greater ingenuity. At the very least, the same amount of time and energy, persistence, ingenuity, theoretical and technical sophistication are needed in this field as are required in scientific investigation at the boundaries of ordinary science and medicine. It just cannot be taken for granted that the exploration of the psyche is a suitable spare time occupation that can be suitably accomplished without space, without resources and without time. It is a quite well-known observation, quite a sad one in the field of psychical research, that apparatus is likely to malfunction in the presence of psychics. During a recent investigation in which I took part, a very senior technical officer said to me, it would be a marvel if apparatus did not always malfunction in the presence of psychics. And he was quite right. Not because necessarily the psychics exert some malign influence over apparatus, but because in this field we are always working with new and unfamiliar apparatus in new and unfamiliar surroundings under terrible pressure of time uh, and under constraints of economy uh, which would be quite unthinkable in any other field of research. Now, some of these difficulties may perhaps be quite salutary, but others make progress at this time and in this age extremely arduous and possibly quite impossible. There may be the equivalent of a critical mass of resources essential to proper further advance in this realm of investigation, below which threshold the same problems recur and recur and recur. The history of the subject is not reassuring in this respect. Furthermore, increasingly, psychical investigation will be, and indeed is already being, carried out by groups, teams or partnerships of people who can bring different forms of insight and expertise to bear on what they are investigating. Certainly, wherever physical measurement is involved, the scientists, the engineers and the technicians know how are entirely indispensable. But since the very subject matter is the psyche, others used to working with persons knowledgeable about psychological considerations are also needed. Such teamwork may also be desirable from quite another point of view. In a field where deception and self-deception are the rule, a field where the imagination may in fact play an active and creative part in producing that which is being investigated, there is a certain safeguard in collaboration between people of different training, outlook, 
and perhaps mentality and temperament. At the same time, I believe we must also try to combine within ourselves attitudes and aptitudes usually felt to be, if not impossible, at least very difficult to reconcile. We need to work with intuition and sensitivity whilst not losing sight of their fallibility and fragility. We must also work with detached objectivity, with the most advanced technical equipment and formal techniques available. Again, without failing to recognize their limitations in this particular field. In order to progress then, we need not only more adequate working conditions and resources, we need unusual but stable combinations of people, and we also need growth and higher personal levels of integration on the part of ourselves, the investigators. And above all, we need in this realm a supportive yet critical reference group, a scientific community so that work can be scrutinized, criticized, furthered, pruned and encouraged, so that problems can be faced and resolved, so that difficulties and dangers may be anticipated. I believe that our visitors of the psyche are indeed changing radically and that this in turn will dramatically affect human experience and human realizable potential. Thank you.